Hi, guys. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Kate. I'm Skip, and we are very excited to have Sam Quinones joining us here today. Sam Quinones is a Los Angeles-based freelance journalist and author of three books of narrative nonfiction. His latest book is Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic. Dreamland was selected as one of the best books of 2015 by publications including the Seattle Times, Boston Globe, and St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Before writing Dreamland, Quinones was a reporter with the LA Times from 2004 to 2014, focusing on immigration, gangs, drug trafficking, and the border. Additionally, Quinones' father, Professor Ricardo Quinones, taught literature at CMC for many years. Thank you so much for joining us here oh, today, Sam. It's great Sam. to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So one of the most interesting things we've heard from other speakers on our show is this concept of inflection points or when you've had to pivot in either your personal or your professional life. What are some of these moments in your life that have gotten you where you are today? Uh, a couple of things. One was um, in my professional life, um, particularly, I spent a lot of time early in my, my after college investing in myself as a reporter and really fearing most of all that I would have a job that I hated. That was what I really, above all, wanted to avoid. And um, I, I had a job at the Orange County Register, which was this great paper back then. I invested in one of those great color presses. This was in the late 80s. And, um, and, but I was working in a daily section of the paper that I did not think was very, a weekly section of the paper that I did not think was very helpful. And I got an offer to be uh, the crime reporter in the city of Stockton, California, working for the Stockton Record, which a, a paper nobody had ever heard of. But that was one of the great decisions that I ever made in my, my personal life because I went there and I learned to write. I wrote four or five stories a day, shortish stories mostly, but a lot of longer ones as well, um, for four years every day, you know, and it was just, that was like graduate school, better than graduate school. You, I was just, it was this crucible under which you just learn, you just learn to write. Every writer, I think, should do that, no matter what you want to write, poetry, whatever. It's, it's an amazing opportunity to always be working your, your writing muscles. And I didn't expect that when I did it. I wanted, I knew that I wanted daily journalism experience instead of just weekly. And I didn't think the Orange County Register was going to give me that opportunity anytime soon. So I, I, I jumped to this and it was fantastic. And I learned so much. And I realized then that, that I uh, loved that. Um, and I loved covering homicides and I loved covering, um, street life and, and that kind of thing, which is what I was, doing i hadn't ever done that before nor i mean I grew up in a in a very uh educated family my my father is uh you know a, a, a retired professor here my mother was an elementary school teacher there was none of the street in our family by any means uh, but it just became part of me and my life and i just threw myself into it and then i realized that, that i could tell great stories too and um so stockton was one and then the other was um not that long after i uh, I spent four years in Stockton, and I uh, made a, I would say, a mistake, and and moved to Seattle. And uh, um, anyone from Southern California should probably not move to Seattle. <laughs> uh, I definitely should not have. I took a job up there. Um, big mistake. Rained all the time. It was just miserable. I was smoking too much, and and didn't really want to be there after a while, so I didn't want to make any friends. It took about four or five months for me to realize I'm getting the hell out of here. And um, as part of that, I had been learning Spanish. Um, I didn't really speak it around the house. We didn't speak it around the house um, at all, and so I was learning it in school. And I, I was going. I had been down to Mexico a couple of times to take classes there. I got a fellowship when I was at the paper in Seattle, 
and um, they allowed me to go for three months down to Mexico uh, to brush up and get better. Um, and my, uh, uh, what I found a job down there at a magazine. Now, I was making a very good salary, and this was a, uh, a magazine that paid like 5% of what I made. No benefits, no expenses. You had to pay for the ca cabs yourself to get to the yeah. stories and stuff. And yet I did it. I, I threw myself. I loved it. It was the best decision uh, I ever made. I said, um, because it, 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 first of all, I'd always wanted to be a foreign correspondent. Didn't want to follow the typical path of the journalist who goes to the major newspaper and then gets anointed to go abroad uh, by some editor. Uh, I just did it myself, and that felt a whole lot more um, real and happy, you know. And then um, while I was down there, Mexico allowed me to be uh, a narrative writer uh, as much as a news writer. And I'd already had several years of ex reporting experience. But I wanted to. Uh, but in Mexico, I began to tell longer stories, and Mexico is given to that. It's so great uh, the the stories that you can find in that country. It's just I was addicted to those stories, and I already had enough experience up to that point, so I could make use of this opportunity. Whereas maybe if I had less experience in writing, I would not have been able to make use of it. So those two moments were really crucial in my writing writing life. And uh, I always am happy that I did both, even though both of them seem strange. Like people around me, colleagues would say, what are you doing moving to Stockton? You know, you're in Orange County, you know, one of the great papers <laughs> at the time. What are you doing moving to Mexico, getting paying, being paid 5% of what you used to make? It all worked out very nicely, um, mainly because, though, I, by then I knew that I just loved the job. I just loved what I wanted, to, what I was doing. And I and, uh, and I, I wanted to keep improving, always getting better. And both of those decisions were based on that desire. You mentioned your focus on narrative in your writing and journalism. I'm wondering how much um, was that affected by your father, both your parents, especially your father being a literature professor? What was the influence he had on you and, and your writing style and your writing interests? I, I think most of all, it was just a fascination, of, a love of stories. That was really it. N writing style, I wouldn't say at all. I'd say that that when I was four, we moved from Harvard, where my dad was getting his PhD, to Claremont. Back then, uh, we were riding on Highway 66. I mean, it was, a, it was a pretty long trip. And along the way, my father told me, uh, my brother was two, um, my other two brothers weren't even born yet, um, told me the story of uh, the Odyssey, Odysseus. And it was like uh, a soap opera. You know, I, I was just like, tell me more, tell me more. And I couldn't remember the guy's name. I remember I did not tell me more of that guy who begins with, oh, you know, that kind of thing, <laughs> kicking the back of the chair. Daddy, come on, come on. And so I heard all about the Cyclops and the Sirens and all, all these kinds of stories. They kind of get infectious, you know, and I've always been in love with great, great stories. You know, I've seen The Godfather 20 times. I can recite you dialogue of the Godfather movies um, and, and great, great journalism appealed to me in the same way that it was uh, kind of intoxicating and and the finding of the story has been so exciting so to me growing up in a, in a in a university or college uh, trained house, household that's that's really what i think i took away from it most of all and it's i i think it's a great template for raising children you know reading to them all the time my, my parents dad and mom both read to us all the time. There was books all over the place. We never had a lot of stuff. We always had a lot of experiences. We went to the beach a lot. We went to France. We, you know, we did things like that. We didn't have, 
We, my parents invested their money in experiences for their children, not in stuff. You know, we had a, I had a clunker bicycle. I rode for four four years in South Claremont all the way to Claremont High School for four years straight. It was the same bicycle falling apart when I first owned it, and it was you know base, barely making it towards the end. That wasn't the focus, I think, of family life, and I think to our benefit, really. Yeah, that's wonderful. So once you were in Mexico and found some of these amazing stories, how did you get stuck on the story of the heroin trade and the opiate ec- epidemic in the United States and the connection between no, the two? No, I, was, I wasn't back in the United States when, that, when I came upon that, but okay. the story itself grew from my experiences in Mexico, particularly in small villages. Um, I got onto the story in the first place because it was a, a village very much like a lot of villages where I'd been to where everybody did the same job. And they did the same job because they didn't have access to education. When you don't have access to education, you take your life's work from people around you, your brother-in-law or what have you. And um, But also, I, I looked at this drug story of this town where everybody sold heroin in the United States like pizza. I looked at it more as an immigration story than a drug story. Because the same impulses that pushed these guys who were not cartel killers, they were farm workers and they bakers to become heroin drivers in the United States, was the same, were the same impulses that pushed people to immigrate illegally to become a landscaper in Dallas or a construction worker in Van Nuys or whatever. And um, to me, I, under, I recognized that because I'd been writing about that. My second book is all about Mexican immigration. It's just entirely about that, you know. And so I recognized that in them. I saw these guys and I thought, this is an immigration story. They want what immigration immigrants want, which is to go home a king, go home better off and show all like going home to your high school reunion. Right. You want to go home to your high school reunion uh, penniless and on parole? No. No. You want to go home this kind of guy who's doing well, the nice car, whatever. Well, there's no difference between these guys and that. They want to do the same. Uh, particularly acute because they they have been humiliated all their lives, been poor all their lives. Girls don't want to talk to them. Very difficult to get girls to marry them if you don't have any money, this kind of thing, particularly in a context where other guys have a lot of money and you don't. Um, all of this is part of how these guys m- moved ahead and, and got into this business when really most of them hate drugs, never would try heroin. They don't want to be involved in 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 in, in that. They want to they want to make money to buy a house and buy a new truck or a new used truck or something, you know. And so it was was my experience of living in Mexico for years and, and going to all these small towns just like Jalisco Nayarit that I noticed and, and understood the, a lot about that town right from the get-go, you know. Sorry. How did you stumble upon to the story in the U.S. then? If you really got into this in the U.S., what was it in the U.S. that you found? I was put on a on team this? of reporters in the L.A. Times to cover the Mexican drug war. I was in L.A., spoke Spanish by then fluently. And, you know, and my job was to cover how drugs were trafficked when they crossed the border to the rest of the United States. And one day I was tooling around the Internet and I find a story about or a series of stories over six months of um people dying of black tar heroin in the town of Huntington, West Virginia. And um, that pushed a number of buttons. First of all, black tar heroin is only made in Mexico. I knew this. Uh, It's only made uh, in this hemisphere anyway. Uh, And it's only uh, for many years before that, I just always thought it was a western United States. It didn't cross the Mississippi River. West Virginia has no Mexicans. It's like the lowest percentage of foreign-born people of any state in the union. 
So what is all this black tar heroin doing in a state with no Mexicans in, uh, in quantities large enough to kill, I think it was a dozen people in six months when they'd have had one overdose in 10 years? So that lead, leads me to then call the police department. What about this big spate of heroin deaths two years ago? Oh, yeah, yeah, but we didn't handle – we tracked that mostly to Columbus. So I called Columbus DEA, and it was Columbus DEA guy who told me the story first of this one town. And that's, when, that's what changed my, my trajectory completely. He's telling me about these guys traveling around town with their mouths full of heroin, little balloons of heroin, and selling it like pizza with an operator taking the order and having the dispatching the driver and all this stuff. And then he says, and – they're all from the same town. And we says that, I just, I re totally remember the, the moment. I just come forward in my chair. I go, really? Well, which one? Because I know at that very moment, I had this overwhelming surge of knowledge that there was a small town somewhere in Mexico where everybody came to Columbus, Ohio to sell heroin like, like pizza. And it was just a matter of finding, and he told me it was Tepic, Nayarit. Tepic, Nayarit is 350,000 people. It's the capital of the state of Nayarit. There's no way a system like this begins in a, in a, a city that, that size. It's got to be more like 10, 15,000, 20,000, right in there somewhere or smaller. And sure enough, that's exactly what was the case. I found a guy who then confirmed to me. And then after that, confirmation after confirmation, numerous, many times. And that's what got me. There's one town, like literally about the size of the footprint of these five colleges, is one of the major, was for many years, one of the major suppliers of heroin to the United States. Now it's been eclipsed because the heroin market in the United States is enormous and many players. So they used to be the big fish in the proverbial small pond, right? Now they've been eclipsed by many other master exporters of heroin and a lot of people are getting into it. But they were the first ones, and they were the, not the first ones, they were the first ones to understand that the United States was heavily, heavily promoting, in the medical establishment, heavily promoting the, the prescribing of opiate painkillers uh, after all kinds of things, for everything, and that that would, they came to understand that that would create a heroin market. And that's exactly what happened. That's what we're seeing all across the country. They were the first ones to figure that out. So you mentioned in Dreamland that a lot of the preconceptions around heroin, especially in the 70s or 80s, is, oh, this is a big city drug, you know, New York City especially, Chicago, Los Angeles. That's where it's being used. But what what the, the conclusions you end up finding is that that's not at all the case. It's kind of shifted now to a, to a rural place. Can you kind of get into why that is? And then also, why why is the U.S. far and away, the U.N. report said recently that why is the U.S. The, far and away the number one user of, of opioids? Why, why is that? The, the last answer to the last question is because we had a medical establishment convinced that these pills were non-addictive when used to treat pain, which is true, proven not to be true. doesn't addict everybody, but it, there's definitely people who do get addicted. And, and, and then there's this, um, uh, I think it gets a lot into questions of who we become as a country, what we become as a country, uh, uh, terrified of pain, um, demanding comfort, uh, above, convenience above all things, um, not wanting to be uh, accountable for our own personal uh, decisions, uh, uh, what we eat, uh, uh, how much we exercise. I mean, we need to be, in my opinion, one of the lessons to learn from all this is um, our health, our wellness is our, our business. And the pill companies do not sell wellness. They sell pills only. And some of those pills are great and some of them are not. But, but that's we cannot count on them to care for, about our wellness. Our wellness is our own personal responsibility, and that means you have to pay a whole, a whole lot of attention to what you eat. 
and what you put in your body and how much exercise you get and all that kind of stuff. And I think a lot of this grew from our desire not to have to do that. And I just want to, I don't want to have to be accountable for my own uh, wellness and, uh, and, and believing in a bit of pill could take care of all my problems and believing in simple or simplistic solutions to complicated problems, you know? Um, and there was a lot of that. We went from being a country that almost never used these drugs to being the country that used 80% of the hydrocodone. I'm sorry, 80% of the oxycodone and 99% of the hydrocodone, the drug in, Ox in Vicodin and some others. Uh, that's an amazing thing. And, and, we, and, and because of that, the world supply surged. It's enormous amounts of that stuff being produced now when, when in 1990, say, almost very little of that stuff was produced worldwide. And now it's all coming uh, to us. In other countries, they do not have the idea that we treat pain with opiate painkillers. That's basically it. Okay, that's the, the bottom line. They do not. Some probably err too much on the side of not doing that. And there's a lot of people who are in pain who don't, who ought not be, people dying of cancer, terminal can, terminal patients, that kind of thing. But but by and large, it's an entire country that for 20 years believed in fantasies uh, and believed, um, as I say in my talk, that um, gee, uh, several baseball players uh, in a in a period of a few short years could hit 60 home runs when it only happened twice in the entire history of the sport. Gee, it's a magnificent idea. Uh, we should all go invest our money in securities that are bundled, made up of, of faulty, <laughs> uh, uh, damaged home loans that, that, that AAA marks AAA. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, uh, Standard, Standard and Poor's marks AAA. Yeah, Moody's, yeah. right? All these things. Uh, to me, it, it was like fantasy land we were living in for a long time. And one of the fantasies was we can prescribe massive doses of opiate painkillers to everybody, and we will not run a risk of widespread addiction. That was one of the fantasies we were living with. Drawing on that then, I mean, the United States has had drug crises before. Yeah. How do we combat this then? How do oh, we do it's really hard. This How do we is change not, This is a very practices? different drug. It is very different because it is the most difficult drug to kick. And the, 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 I hear addiction specialists say, every opiate addict out there needs a year. You know how expensive a year of drug treatment is? It's, it's, it's break the bank expensive. It's beyond the means of most families. Um, and it's one of the reasons why Obamacare created, um, um, uh, uh, you know, addiction uh, coverage, uh, uh, it included addiction coverage within it because nobody can really afford to do it. Only the very rich and frequently not even them, you know, because Kids get out and they get they get uh, they get relapse and then back and forth and um, this is the only drug uh, scourge since well at least since World War II where mafias and drug peddlers did not create it you know uh, it's it's also the drug scourge with the least amount of violence you know in the past dating to Al Capone the underworld drug marketers have always used the barrel of the gun. Well, this is drug companies using marketing and branding. And that was the other reason I focused on the Jalisco boys, because they use the same thing. They never use guns. They use they use a marketing, branding. Every balloon is exactly like a can of Pepsi. It, you know what's in a can of Pepsi, right? You know what's in a, one of their little balloons. And if you don't get it, you've got a number to call, a customer service number kind of, to call. And, you know, they they were master discounters and master marketers and branders and so on. And they were very much like the, the pharmaceutical companies that marketed opiates, mm -hmm. um, Purdue Pharma in particular. And so to me, um, this, this all is very, very difficult now to, to, to fight because you're talking about the most difficult substance 
to kick. And here's the other thing. We have so much supply out on the streets that treating opiate addiction is now like Russian roulette because you get out, you're clean, you relapse. Addiction involves relapse always for everything. I relapsed uh, uh, on cigarettes nine times in my attempt to quit cigarettes. I finally did 21 years ago. I never died from relapsing on cigarettes. You die very quickly. Very That's happening all across the country a lot. And so um, to me, this is a, a, a real problem. Once you open this horrible Pandora's box of opiates and the, the, the unique, I really do believe they are kind of unique in their effect on the human species. Um, uh, no, nothing kills, kills pain like opiates. And they're magnificent. And every soldier blesses, you know, uh, thanks the day that they, they were able to extract opium and morphine and so on. But at the same time, they are extraordinarily enslaving and, 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 and nightmarishly so. And so that's what we've opened up. Um, and um, I, I'm not sure I know what, what solutions are. The, what, what the, the, there is no solution. There are more likely many, many solutions we must try all at the same time. Um, and and be, begin acting as, commu as a community again and, and beginning to, to force this, uh, to face this uh, with a whole bunch of answers instead of one. We got into this because we believed in one single answer to a very complicated problem, which is our human pain. Um, and that simple answer was pills for everybody. Yay. Well, that led to a real serious problem that we're now, we're now facing. Right? In an article you recently wrote about uh, pivoting kind of the, to the 2016 election, um, you wrote about how you visited areas, Columbus, Ohio specifically, um, and you saw a lot of areas hit very hard by this opiate epidemic. Um, and you saw a lot of Trump-Pence signs. You saw, mm -hmm. you saw uh, big support, especially in Columbus, where I think uh, they voted more for Obama in 2012 um, and then voted overwhelmingly for, tr for Trump this time around. Do you see any correlation or, or, or what's the link between potentially oh, Trump totally. voters and, and Oh, no, I think, yeah. I think opiates elected Donald Trump. And I say that because um, uh, he won the key states that he won that put him over the top. He was always going to win Alabama, right? But he won because he won North Carolina, Ohio, especially Ohio. Um, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, those, those states. If you look at where he won in the way you were, you were mentioning, uh, you know, a lot of those counties, Romney won four years ago uh, with 49% of the vote, just barely squeaking by. Trump wins those with 65 minimum, 70, 75, almost 80% uh, of the vote. Of the vote. Um, one of the major... Uh, facts of life in those areas is opiate addiction and doesn't necessarily mean that everybody in those counties is strung out for it to be an, an influence on the, on their vote. It, what it means is opiates bring with it a kind of a fatalism, a negativity, an inertia, a kind of a narco fog where everyone thinks everything's falling apart. Doesn't You could not have anybody in your family who's strung out, but you know down the street the pastor's son, the quarterback of the high school just died. Uh, the cops are, are, are reviving two or three people every weekend. Um, and, and this kind of creates this feeling like things are falling apart. In all of these counties, if you look at the many of these counties, they have unemployment rates, which are a third of what they used to be. They, they used to be, what, 16 in 2010, 2009, 10, right in there, 16%, 17%, now there's 6%, 5%, 7%, whatever it happens to be. You would think that there's this like bubbling optimism in these areas. There was not. There was a deep fatalism and a dread of the future. 
And one of the main reasons is because um, opiates are everywhere. And those, they, it shrouds, uh, it, it disguises a much lo more somber reality, which is in, in many of those counties, you cannot find people uh, who can pass a drug test to fill a lot of jobs. There's no way you're going to make those areas great again without a massive investment in drug treatment of one kind or another so that people can actually put up jobs and have people fill them with and, and be able to pass a, dr a drug screen. The other thing that I think happened was between 2012 and 2016, the problem did get worse, but even more, the awareness of the problem became far more intensified. Everybody now, everybody in the country became aware of it, and especially in these counties, anybody who was not aware of it became aware of it very, very quickly. And that also lent itself to this feeling, like, damn it, things are just falling apart, even though, gee, more jobs than ever, or not than ever, but but more jobs than compared to uh, six years prior, you know, I mean, and, and so, so there's all these counties were like that. I, I think um, there were there were other issues, but to me, he he won because those counties uh, swung the states in which they were they were in because they didn't just go fifty five percent for Trump. They went like minimum sixty and usually sixty five, seventy, seventy five percent. They they overwhelmed the, the Columbus and the Cleveland and the Akron vote um, with with um, with their own you know percentages. And and a lot in a lot of those areas, um, it, it's just opiates are the the most important fact of life right now. To me, opiates are why why he won. Basically, he wouldn't have won the election without a couple of those states. And in all those states, it's this is the this is the issue in a lot of those counties. What do you think is going to happen now then that some of his budget and policy proposals are actually to cut funding for I can't some of believe these things? That. I just am stunned. I I, I don't know what's going to happen, but. But I'm I'm thinking, no, you don't understand. <laughs> there are so many people who you don't need to cut their Medicaid expansion coverage for addiction treatment. You need to double it, triple it, quadruple it. You need to make it longer. You need to make tr ex uh, treatment for a year. You know, this is the only way. That, otherwise, all those people will die. You know, that's the that's the what happens. You cannot go into treatment for 28 days. The 28-day dry out, that's for alcohol. Hmm. Opiates are a very, very different beast, and they are a beast. You cannot treat them that way. And so, to my mind, I'm stunned. I'm not surprised, though, because I never really believed he had much uh, feeling for the people who, who were rallying to him. And this shows it. To me, the, the idea that you would cut funding, in, in, you would not double or triple funding for, for, for treatment in those areas. But instead, cut it. It's it's a mind-boggling idea, um, and 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 you know the truth is, it doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect me. I have health insurance, and I'm not addicted to anything, and I have a nice job, and a nice wife, and everything's going pretty well in my life. It's the people who are who are who need it in those counties that went seventy seventy-five percent for him, who who are who are dying, and um in a variety of ways, and this is the one of the main ones that need it, and I cannot believe that that's what's on the plate of uh and, and the republicans are, are proposing this it just boggles the mind i'm, I'm also interested about uh border security to an extent uh, because you mentioned uh, again in dreamland that that these, these drugs come over the border in backpacks and sometimes boom boxes um and they they come from the fields in, in mexico where they're farmed 
and then a week later they are are ready yeah. for sale. Right. Um, and I'm wondering what what do you think about maybe Trump's proposals for more border security? Would that maybe combat the problem or? I mean, I think we have a lot of border security now, and I don't believe there are too many places where we need walls. There's a there's a misconception that we are somehow need that we have have no walls or just a yeah. go to Tijuana, go to South Texas, go to uh, Nogales. You will see walls and walls and walls. And and the truth is, nobody is running across the border in the middle of the desert with tons of drugs. It's just not happening. The way people smuggle drugs is across border crossings where there already are lots of walls. And the problem we face is that we now have a massive demand for heroin that we never had uh, even, well, ever, but certainly not 20 years ago. And um, heroin is the easiest drug to smuggle. It exists not because it has any medical utility. There is no medical utility to heroin that other drugs don't satisfy with far less risk. It exists because it is a spectacularly great drug for drug traffickers. It's easy to conceal, easy to cut, creates um, customers that need to come back time and time and time every day, four or five times a day. Um, and it's very easy to conceal on your body. All that kind of mm -hmm. stuff makes it the perfect trafficker drug. So so uh, really the only way to, to, tra to battle it is to really begin to push Mexico, but develop maintaining relations with Mexico so that you can have a conversation with them. I don't believe presidents dating back to Reagan up to the present have really confronted Mexico with the issues of drug trafficking the way they need to be confronted. Obama didn't do it. Uh, Bush, too, didn't do it. Um, so I, I think that's definitely, it's unconscionable. You know, 90% of our heroin comes from Mexico. That's easily combated back in Mexico, and yet I understand the Mexican government has a lot on its plate right now. But nevertheless, those are the people causing problems that, that we need to work together to fight. And if we just say it's your problem and we don't care what happens here, Mexico says we don't care what happens here, as is their want to do if they get pushed in this, this kind of very Yankee stereotypical way, well, that's not a good thing for them, uh, but it's certainly not a good thing for, for, for us. And so... Uh, I don't know. To me, it feels like we need this. Um, we need a stronger, franker, more consistent relationship with Mexico than we have ever had. We do not need to be uh, poking and 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 enraging people and insulting uh, people. We do, though. We definitely do need to speak with far greater frankness and um, and sternness and 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 say, "Look, this is a problem." And, and um, there is no, we have our own, we have our own guilt in all this, our own culpability. But the truth is, the country that needs to change more is Mexico. I lived there 10 years. We are not a country that people are risking death to leave. Okay, that's the basic fact. And Mexico is. And so I, I say that we, we have our problems. We have a horribly lax um, gun possession laws, if you ask me. Um, and all those drunk guns make their way south, so we have our own issues. But we also need to understand that Mexico really needs to change far more than we do. Thank you. So we're almost out of time. Right. And our favorite question to end on is, what is your personal definition of success? And how would you help students in defining success for themselves? My, I guess my personal uh, definition of success is to be looking for things that you love. 
um, professionally and hobbies and whatnot, whatnot um, and uh, um, personal life. Um, and, uh, and letting uh, um, other things hopefully take care of themselves. And my, my feeling is, uh, my mother told me early on in my life, and uh, it was enforced by my dad, that, that um, the most important thing you can do is find a job that you love, that you want to wake up every day and are glad to be able to do it, you know. And that is very, very important. It influences everything else in your life if you don't find that or if you do. And so success, but that does not necessarily have much to do with how much money you make. It, it more has to do with how much of it you feel fulfilled doing. That in this part of this heroin book, I began to, I'm a crime reporter, but I began to read philosophers on how we achieve happiness. And how, you do not pursue happiness. Pursuit of happiness is actually a, 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 a wrong way to put it. Happiness comes, according to several philosophers I read, from pursuing something that, that, that obsesses you but fulfills you and you, you are in love with in a way. And happiness is the byproduct of working hard and, and, and achieving something that you really, really love. Uh, money is a side thing, question. Um, and uh, because this book was all about people trying to find happiness through buying stuff, right? You buy stuff to make you happy. Well, heroin is the final stuff, right? I began to think, how do you, what, 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 how do you achieve happiness? And what do philosophers say? And that's what they say, that, that it's really by pursuing things that fulfill you, that make you feel like you are somehow um, worthwhile in taking up the world's space. And, and that in the end, you wake up in the morning, and you feel like, gosh, I get to do this. Uh, and I get to be with this person and I get to, you know, um, be be working in this and, and I have a have a, a, a nice relationship with neighbors. The, all these kinds of things are um, definitions uh, of success. And um, too often, I think, um, maybe in, in the world today, people don't find that. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. So thank you, Sam, for joining us. And to all the listeners out there, remember to stay hungry.